All right, we're going to finish up our study here in Baptist Essentials by talking about the church gathered. Um, I think I printed out the wrong... Oh, yeah, I gave you the wrong title, but sorry about that. Can you tell I just copy and paste the, from the old... Uh, from the old... Yeah. Um, so that that should say the church gathered, so make that correction on your handout. Sometimes it's good for us to simply obey even when we don't understand why, but one of the marks of maturity is starting to to obey and and then to see the reasoning behind why we're being commanded to do that. Now, clearly, we can't always know why God commands us to do certain things or our authorities often have more information than we do and, and so we simply just need to follow their instruction. But, but um, as we grow in our spiritual understanding, one of the things that, that helps is not just obeying a list of commands, but actually understanding the God behind the commands, right? What is it that God really is driving at when He commands this and not this? And um, for myself, um, growing up, my dad was always pressing on us to, to work. And, um, you know, as, as today in our society, we see work as a, a dirty word, like a four-letter word that nobody wants to say and it's a bad thing and and so, but at the time, you know, he's constantly, okay, we need to use your summer, but, but dad, summer's for vacation. And, um, and, um, and yet over time, I started to discover, as I grew up in my maturity, I started to discover the importance of work. And as I understood the reason why work was so important and started to see other people who were kind of the contrast to that, to what my dad was teaching, which was lazy that they would just spend their lives in laziness, it, it made sense to me why he would push that so hard. And, and I think the same thing is, is similar here. When we look at what God calls us to do, it's important for us to know what He calls us to do, and it's important for us to do it, but, but, but why not dig a little deeper and think a little bit more, um, uh, a little bit deeper and try to understand what, what is behind the command? So, for example, we know, the, we know the command that we must meet together, Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how we are to stimulate, stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so, yes, when God says, don't forsake your meeting together, we understand that and with faith-filled obedience we should do it. But, but even better is if God gives us an indication of why, then we should understand why. So that's the question that we want to explore this morning at the top of your handout. What is the purpose of our weekly gatherings as a church? What is the purpose of our weekly gatherings? And um, so I'm going to start by reviewing some of what we looked at last week on congregationalism and what our purpose is, and then we'll move into three implications um, from that for our weekly gatherings. All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your instruction to us. Thank you that you have left us with uh, your expectations for us. We pray that we would go out for the sake of Christ's name, 
so that the world would be reached and we pray that we would understand some of your reasoning behind it. And Lord, we pray that because of our understanding of, of uh, what drives those commands, that it would motivate us to do them more consistently, more faithfully, and with better attitudes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we saw in Matthew 16 that the charter of the local church given by Jesus is to guard the what and the who of the gospel. That we want to be able to... Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Right? And, and Peter says, you are the Christ. And he says, you have spoken rightly. And flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but your heavenly Father revealed that to you. So that's the what, that Jesus is the Christ. He is our Savior. But we also need to be able to guard the who, the who of the gospel. Who it is, not only what is a right confession, but who it is that's making the right confession. And so that's what we do with, um, with the ordinances, which the way that we guard the we guard the, the fence, we could say, of the church, of who's in and who's out, is through the ordinances. Jesus commanded us to do so in Matthew 18, to, you know, if someone sins against you, then, then tell to the church, and if they still don't uh, repent, then, then remove them from your midst. And basically what we're removing them from is to be able to, to, to join with us in the Lord's Supper. And um, we're, we're saying we can no longer fir- affirm that you are a Christian. Now, whether they are or not, that's... God's um, only God knows, but but we can no longer affirm it based on the way that they're living. Uh, their their life doesn't match up with what a Christian ought to do. So last week I did not mention how unique this purpose statement for a church is from what we might see in a number of other churches. The church's main purpose is not the great commandment. What is the great commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That is something we absolutely must do. The purpose for the church is not the Great Commission. Okay, The way that John Piper says it is, um, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Or we could say it this way. The Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples. That command exists only because worship does not. If worship existed in all the world, the Great Commission would not be necessary. So what we see there is there's some larger purpose than just the Great Commandment and just the Great Commission. And so our purpose as a church is, is not simply to just do things. Okay, go out and make disciples. Yes, we should do that. But why are we doing that? And that's what we're trying to get at today. And I think the answer is... Um, is evidence that our larger purpose is to glorify God, right? If we, so we can say it this way. Our purpose as a church is to glorify God by the means by which we do that is by making disciples. Or we glorify God by loving God and loving our neighbors. And so that is why as a church we need to, to recognize not only the purpose or the task that we've been given, which is to guard the what and who of the gospel, but why we're doing it. And it is for the glory of God. I mean, that's why men willingly gave themselves to be burned alive during the Protestant Reformation over issues like ordinances, issues like baptism and the Lord's Supper. They, were, they gave their lives for these because they're so critical to what it means to being a church. And as Christians, we need the local church. We need the local church, not mainly just to hear teaching, 
not mainly as a place where we can just have somewhere to go, not just a source of encouragement. It is all of that. And all those things are related to the purpose for why we exist. But we need the church in order to cling to the gospel. We need the church in order to remind us of what the gospel is and to affirm that we are people of the gospel, that we are living it out, right? Remind us of what it is, the what of the gospel, and remind us or affirm for us that we still are in, that we're still believing it and living it out, that our lives match our profession or our walk matches what we say we believe. So if the purpose of the local church is mainly about guarding the what and the who of the gospel, then we might think, well, if all we need to know is what the gospel is and who the who the right confessor is, then why do we have to gather? Right? Why even bother? I mean, after all, what matters most is what we believe and whether we live out those beliefs. And so what do we really care about coming to a place where other people are submitting themselves to the teaching of God's Word and joining together in relationships? Why is that so important? But the New Testament doesn't allow us to think like that. The New Testament shows the regular assembly of the believers as critical to the life of a believer. In fact, when Jesus instituted the church after His resurrection, uh, the, the apostles really put it into place, a regular, regular assembly quickly formed so that they would meet on the first day of the week in celebration of that resurrection. And, and these meetings are important because they're used to allow the, the, the believers to come together and listen to the apostles' teaching and then join in the breaking of bread and join in prayer. And, and, um, and so this was a time in which they could not only affirm what is the true gospel, but, but, but to do that in a corporate type of setting. They're reaffirming one another's citizenship. Remember the illustration of the, the, um, not the consulate. What's the um, embassy? The embassy in the, in a different country. You have the, the guy who's affirming the passport. Okay, affirming. Here's your passport. You lost your passport, or we want to affirm that you are a U.S. citizen. So here it is. But then once you receive that, you come on the other side and say. Okay, now I'm going to work together with all these people behind the desk and affirm other people's um, citizenship. And we do that through the ordinances, through baptism and the Lord's Supper. So for the rest of our time, I want to walk through three implications of the local church's purpose statement for our our weekly gathering. Okay, implication number one. Our gatherings are designed by God. Our gatherings are designed by God. I mentioned a few minutes ago that that every Christian needs a local church. Each of us is absolutely, vitally in need of a local church. A, A local church, not just any church, but one that's going to guard the what and the who of the gospel. And and we can't just say, well, I'll just go to a church. It's something that calls itself a church. Someone may call a weekly hike in the woods a church because it's there where they are going to meet with God in nature. 
But that's not what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 16 when he says, on you I will build, or on this rock I should say, I will build my church. And the reason we know that walking in the woods is not acceptable or fill in the blank for, for anything that doesn't guard the what and who of the gospel and is not assembly is because the scriptures tell us what it is that should be a part of the church. So, for example, if your doctor told you you needed a bone marrow transplant, what's your next question? So, assuming you already know what that is and why you need it. Well, what, who do you recommend? What is my next step of treatment? I mean, who do you recommend? Because I don't want to settle for, for some coupon in, you know, in the newspaper. You know, they got half off on bone marrow tra- transplants or something. And they do it in their basement. Um, no, you wanna, you, once you understand the, the challenge and what he expects of you, then you want to understand what's the need and what's, what's next. And so if it's true, if we believe that we do need a church... Then, then the next question is, well, what kind of church do we need? What is it, God, that you expect of us? And this brings us to um, what theologians call the regulative principle. The regulative principle. That is, it, it answers the question, what should we do when we join in assembly, uh, in the assembly of the local church? What is it that we should do? So, so who determines what kind of elements we have in our worship services? And what theologians do is they, they call this the regulative, regulative principle versus the normative principle. Okay? And, and I'll tell you what both of those are here in just a second. Um, the regulative principle says that, that the local church should only include the elements of worship that are already authorized or seen in a pattern in the New Testament. So we don't include anything in our worship services that are not already expected or, or commanded in the New Testament. The normative principle is the opposite. It says we can, do, we can do anything that God doesn't prohibit. So, for example, I'll throw out a really bizarre one that I don't know if any church maybe does this during their worship service, but, but bingo. Okay, Does the Bible prohibit Bingo, in a, lo- in a worship service. Okay, does it explicitly say anywhere that a person can't have bingo? And the answer is no. The Bible doesn't prohibit that. So, so then we can have bingo at our worship service. Okay, we could add a lot of other ones, you know, like, um, I don't know. Um, square dance lessons. Okay, yes. Let's add some square dance lessons because those aren't in the Scriptures either. either. Thank you. Um, but what, what we're saying is it's not about we can do anything that the Bible doesn't prohibit in our worship services, but rather we can only do the things that the Bible allows or, or not, not, not even allows, but, but only do the things that the Bible commands or authorizes. And so that's why... Uh, well, let me just read you a couple, um, couple confessions of faith that were written uh, long before we were born at least most of us, Westminster Confession of Faith the, uh, says the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by His own revealed will that He may not be worshipped according to the imaginations or devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible res- representation or any other way not dis- prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So the key word there is prescribed. Something that 
only the Scriptures prescribe. The London Baptist Confession came later in 1644. The rule of this knowledge, faith, and obedience concerning the worship and the service of God and all other Christian duties is not man's inventions, not man's opinions, not his devices, laws, constitutions, or traditions unwritten whatsoever, but only the Word of God contained in the canonical Scriptures. So here's, here's, our, um, here's our rule book for what we can include in the Scriptures, or, or what can we include our, our services, and that is what, what is in the Scriptures. So we want to follow what God's prescription is. Okay, similar to the doctor illustration, what is your prescription now for this? What do I need to do? It's not my idea to, to come together as a church. It's not your idea to come to as, together as a church. It's God's idea. So let's ask Him, what does He want within a worship service? And here are several things that, um, that we have here um, that are commanded for us and, and uh, we see as a pattern in Scripture. What does God call us to do in a church? First, to pray. Okay, that's why in every service that we have, we have at least one prayer, usually more than that, two or three times where we come before God and we acknowledge our dependence upon Him through prayer. We do that because in Acts 2, um, well, let's just turn to some of these. Uh, let's take some volunteers. Colossians 4, 2 through 4, Jonathan, First Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Bill, First Timothy 4.13. Bill, can you take that one as well? Yep, Colossians 4.15. Uh, Greg, and then um, er, Colossians 4.15. Yeah. Um, and then let's everybody else turn to Acts 2. And when we talk about church, this passage in Acts 2 comes up over and over again, and rightfully so, because this is where the church uh, was first formed here in Jerusalem, and we kind of see a pattern of, of what's going on there at the beginning. So what does God call us to do in church? Colossians 4, 2 through 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time. All right, First Timothy two one and two. I thought therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honor. All right, so Paul's talking to Timothy, teaching him how to to um, to lead the church, and he's saying, you know, there, there ought to be prayers being made to God. Uh, chapter 4, verse 13, reading Scripture. Shall I come, give attendance to reading to exhortations of doctrine? All right, so you should give attention to the public reading of Scripture, the exhortation and the teaching. So um, you may go to churches where um, they don't have a, a separate Scripture reading like we do. We have one normally right after the offering, but then we also have one 
rate of the sermon. That doesn't mean that those churches are, are opposed to God or anything like that because often what those pastors do is they read their text before they preach it or while they're preaching through it. So um, there should be some kind of reading. We happen to do two, two readings in the, in the service at least. And um, so that's, that comes here from 1 Timothy 4. Colossians 4.15 Okay, that sounds more like uh, should be under giving rather than... Um, than the reading of Scripture. Yeah, I think that was the wrong verse either way. Sorry about that. Um... Okay, well, I can scratch that one off. But First um, Timothy 4.13 is, I think, clear. Make sure you give your attention to the public reading of Scripture. Now, Acts 2. Here's where we see, kind of summarize the elements that should be in the worship service. Verse 42, they were continuing, continually devoting themselves to the apostles', apostles teaching. So, there's some kind of preaching going on where... The apostles at this point, early on in the in the church, are preaching, and later on in Titus um, says, "Preach the word, right? In in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort." So, Titus is you're leading people. One of your responsibilities is to is to preach. So that's why we have preaching as part of our service. Verse 42 says, "And to fellowship." There should kind uh, it's not there in your list, but there should be some kind of fellowship going on. It shouldn't just happen when we have lunches or anything like that, but um, it should happen at that time as well. But but fellowship is simply the exhortation of one believer to another, speaking the truth to one another in love, encouraging people to to continue on in the faith. Breaking of bread is talking about the Lord's Supper, and so that's why we include that. The scriptures don't say how often we need to have the breaking of bread. Um, but Jesus says, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. And then to prayer at the end of verse 42, see that idea again. Um, verse 41 kind of uh, establishes the church there. So then those who had received his word were baptized and that they were added about 3,000 souls. So there should be uh, baptism. Again, that's not going to be every service as often as it's, it's needed. Um, Jesus told us to make disciples of all nations and baptize them, or he actually says it with a gerund, baptizing them in the name of the Father. So one of the things that you do of disciples is you baptize them. Um, then the Lord's Supper, we already saw, and see it again in 1 Corinthians 11, one of the key passages there, uh, where Paul says, stop coming for your own purposes or stop eating the Lord's Supper without thinking about anyone else. Um, some of you are sick and some are sleeping because you're not taking it seriously. And then to sing, Ephesians 5:19, be filled with the Spirit. How do we fill our? How, how do we make sure that we're filled with the Spirit? Well, one of the ways is that we're singing to one another, right? We sing to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and me- making melody in your hearts to the Lord. So we're singing both to God and to one another. It's one of the commands and expectations of God in our worship services. 
and then uh, give. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 um, is where Paul's making a collection. seems like a special collection, but he says concerning the collection for the saints, he says on the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections may be made when I come. So there should be giving as well. Um, Paul talks about in other places how that a laborer is worthy of his wages so that means that, that the, um, the pastor of the church ought to be paid, that you know, the ox is able to take some of the grain that he's threshing, and in the same way a pastor should be able to, to make a living from, from the gospel. Uh, now Paul, on his part, decided not to do that because he didn't want to, to give people the in, indication that he was doing it for money, that he was trying to peddle the gospel. So initially early on, or basically throughout his ministry, he just said, I'm not going to receive money for the gospel, so uh, for preaching the gospel. Even though I have the right, I'm not going to. Uh, so that means that if there are pastors who choose not to receive money um, from the church, there's nothing unbiblical about that. But they, they should be able to, um, should be the expectation. So if that's going to happen, the implication is that people have to give, right? That's not going to come from, from nowhere. Um, and so that seems to be the pattern of the church. All right, let me walk through these three um, reasons to limit our services to these elements and then see if you have any questions on what we include in our service and, and um, what the Scriptures prescribe, prescribe. Number one, we don't have a warrant to bind a Christian's con- conscience where the Scripture doesn't. So, Christians are commanded to be at church regularly, but we need to be careful that we do that in a setting um, where we're not, we're not forcing people to come to something that the Scriptures don't demand. So, for example, if we set up an optional church picnic where we eat and play games, that would be optional, right? That's not commanded of Scripture for every single believer to, to be there. But suppose we shifted our picnic games into our Sunday morning gathering, you know, suddenly changing it from something that is optional, something you may participate in, in, to something that you must participate in, right? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. We're having picnic games, right? And um, so what we've done now is we've taken, we, we've gone beyond what the Scripture has said and we've bound the person's conscience by saying this is something that God demands of you. And if you don't do it, you're sinning against God type of idea. We may not say it in those terms, but, but we want to, we want to um, allow the Spirit to work in a person based on what He commands us to do. That's why we limit these to, to what the Scriptures prescribe. Number two, God knows how we should worship or God requires that we approach Him in His way. Right. So if the doctor knows what we need, we need to be a part of a local church, then the doctor also knows how that church should be should be formed and how it it should be it should operate. Um, it's not about us ultimately. I mean, how who's who's to say that we know how to worship? Why do you think God in the Old Testament gave so many instructions on worshiping Him? You know, when He could have just said, "Worship me," however you guys think is necessary. Well, what what happens when people do that? Right, Exodus, was it Exodus 12, somewhere in there, or maybe it's later, 
um, where you have the golden image, right? We, we know what you said, God, but here's a way that we think that we could worship you well. And so they, they craft this golden image. Or, you know, First Chronicles 15 with the transport of the Ark of the Covenant, rather than doing it on the poles, uh, they decide, you know, we're just going to do it on a cart. It's a little bit more efficient maybe, and, you know, it's, it's already on a cart, so let's attach some horses to it and, and go on our way. And God says, no, I have a specific way that I want to be worshipped, and, and I'll tell you how I wor- want to be worshipped. And so... Um, as far as the main elements, God is the one who determines those. As far as how we do them, um, I think there's some, some leeway, some liberty for us to determine what that looks like. In other words, the order of service or, or what specific passages we're going to read or what specific songs we're going to sing. All those have to be within the context of what the Scriptures require uh, as well. But, but the point is, is that as far as the main elements, God is the one who knows how to do it. Why would we think that we can just kind of take the reins from Him and, and do it our own way. And they'd have an Abihu is another good example from Leviticus 10, right? They decided that they would offer their own kind of strange fire to God, and um, it was a sobering reminder that God uh, God's commands will not be trifled with. Let me get to this third one here and then um, see if you have questions. Number three, the Holy Spirit had good reasons for designing our gatherings as He did. So why limit our services to prayer, reading Scripture, preaching, ordinances, singing, and giving? Why? I mean, let's go a little bit deeper. Why include those? Well, I think the Spirit knows. We, we don't understand all those reasons why. I mean, we, we might be able to answer some of those questions. Well, it makes sense that we need to pray publicly. It makes sense, or corporately, we need to read Scripture. We can understand some of the reasons. We don't know all the reasons why, and that's okay. Um, because the Spirit does and, and will follow His his example. All right, questions? Jonathan. thought that comes to mind, um, particularly addresses number two. Yeah. God is supposed to be who we're worshiping. He's the object of our worship. Um, I've seen it as Yeah, it would be like, um, you know, me having a birthday party for Jennifer at a bowling alley or, let's say, at a football game. We're going to have a big, you know, so, well, if it's really about her, it sounds like it's more about me, right, than, than it is about her, because I'm the one who likes football. Um, so, but but if I make her my, you know, celebration of her, it's not really according to what kind of thing she likes, and then, you know, for the meal, we have pizza and and, uh, and ice cream and things like that. Um, instead of her favorite meals, you know, it's not really about her then. And I think that's the point that Jonathan's making, which is a good one. If it's about God, then let's make it about Him. Let's make sure that it's something that pleases Him, something that, that He desires, 
uh, rather than something that, you know, I left feeling really good about myself. And, you know, sometimes church does that. Praise God that he helps us to, to be encouraged when we walk away. Um, but, but primarily it's not about, you know, they sang my favorite song or they read my favorite scripture or, or you, know, you know, these people acted towards me in a certain way or, you know, I didn't feel as spent as I do when I have to give of myself. Um, this week, so that that that's good for me. It's not really about us primarily; it's about God. So a few areas of application. First, use this model in evaluating a new church home. So when you do move on to another church, take seriously what it is that that church's responsibility is with regard to worship. So, what do they include in their worship services? Take some time. I mean. Don't take years. It shouldn't shouldn't take years to, to find a church. But but take um, take some time. Take several services, maybe a couple months, to evaluate um, that church and see if they operate by the regulative principle or the normative principle. You know, do they do they just include anything that the Bible prohibits? You know, they got all sorts of other things that. You don't see them in the New Testament, but but they're included in there. Snake handling and all sorts of things. Um, number two, use this model to evaluate our own church services. So this should reorient how we evaluate our own church services, which I hope you've been doing even during this time that you've been thinking about it. Instead of thinking, you know, how did I feel or what did I get out of the sermon, then we can be a little bit more God-focused, which is what Jonathan just brought up. Did what happened this morning please God? That's what the question is should be when we finish a service. Did this please God? This is why we came, for God. So was He pleased in what we did? And praise God we have a way to evaluate whether our services pleased God or not, at least to some degree. Um, thirdly, make sure that you make use of all of what the Holy Spirit has given you. Recognize that the Holy Spirit gave us all these elements because we need them. You know, maybe you're a person that you just love the teaching of God's Word, and you would, if you had it your way, you would just come just for the sermons. I don't need the singing. I don't need all the. I don't need the giving. Um, maybe, maybe um, the Holy Spirit included those elements in worship, prayer, reading the scriptures, um, giving, singing, because. We need them. And, or, or maybe you're a person who really likes the song service and you really love to sing different hymns that you grew up on, but you don't really like the preaching or the readings or something. Um, see, we can grow in, in how we appreciate the other elements of the service and how we participate in the other elements of the service as we're commanded. All right, that was a lot on implication number one. Implication number two, God has special purposes for our corporate worship So, in order to understand what our purpose for corporate worship is, let's think about what worship is. And David Peterson has this definition here that I think is helpful. Engaging with God on the terms that He proposes and in the way that He alone makes possible. So, in other words, engaging with God on His terms by His means. So, what does He want and how does He want us to do it? Or, or through, through what does he, does he expect us to do it? And, and He gives us the means to do that. 
Um, Jesus in John 16:14 said, "The Spirit will glorify me, for He will take of mine and will disclose it to you." So He's saying, "You disciples, the Spirit's going to make it clear what what is important for the worship of God." Three characteristics of worship: first, it's a response to God Himself. Worship first is 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 a right and natural amazement of the glory of who God is. Right? We start to as we start to understand who God is and what He's done, it, it re- causes us to respond in worship, that we want to praise Him and give our lives to Him. Secondly, it, comp- it encompasses our entire lives. Our daily activities certainly can be worship. We've talked about this in previous classes where you know all of life is worship. Um, and, and our daily activities can lead into worship um, by as we start to think about who God is, and and that's a good thing, you know. We we should be worshiping God not just on Sunday morning, you know. Uh, we should be worshiping God with all of our lives as we see the the in- intricacies and the largeness of God's creation, the amazing things that He has accomplished, and the the answers to prayers, the the um, creation all around us, and and so. This worship is that that we join together in doing is is a way to help teach us how to worship in the rest of our lives as well. Thirdly, it's 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 a delight in the beauty of God in Christ. When we think of worship, we often think of emotions, what we experience when we think about God. What's my experience? You know, how how was my worship? Um, you know, a lot of these newer churches are talking about just um, kind of uh, just having a really... We just have had a really great worship today. And, and what they mean by that often is that they had a great experience. You know, it was the... You know, not not to just um, kick a dead horse, but, but the, um, the big rock concerts and type things where you feel really good about yourself. You might not, but other people might feel really good about themselves um, because, hey, we... we um, we, we we felt good in our experience, but really worship is about delighting in God's beauty through Christ. Um, so while all of life can be worship and all of life can lead us into worship, what we're talking about is something more narrow than than all of life worship. We're talking about corporate worship. We're talking about what we do together when we come to. Um, to this place. So what's so special about corporate worship? What happens in corporate worship that doesn't happen when, let's say, we pray, sing, and read the Scriptures and listen to a sermon at home? Well, let me give you three, three pieces or three answers here. What's so special about corporate worship? Number one, we hear a trustworthy message. Now, obviously, we need to take this into context and recognize that, that there are will be times when when all that I say is not the most accurate and, and what I'm saying is over the long haul there there should be a trustworthy message that's being proclaimed because it comes from the scriptures and that is my goal by the way whenever I preach not to come up with my own ideas or to force my agenda onto yours but but I want to, to be able to to make what we see in the text the point of the sermon and also the point of the applications so why are we why are we called to live in such a way? 
Well, all the Scripture says us that we are, and we see that right here. Um, so, so we hear a trustworthy message, and, and we do it within the context of other believers. And, and so this helps us guard the what and the who of the gospel, doesn't it? I mean, it helps us to guard the what because we're constantly being pointed back to what the Scriptures teach and say about what we ought to believe. And it also helps us to guard the who because we really do it in the context of other people who are joining with us. And so as we listen to the sermon, we're also li- we're sitting alongside of or near someone else who's listening to the, service, or to the sermon. And in that way, it actually um, helps us with the accountability factor. Um, that, that we recognize who who's who's there, who's paying attention, who's who's joining in and understanding and, and applying it to their lives. Secondly, special what's so special about corporate worship, we worship together. So this this is unifying because we're doing it together. We don't have an e campus, okay, where we just kinda just show up on your computer at home. We'll live stream the service but just make sure you check in. Okay, we'll see all your names listed there on the side, and and that'll be good. No, actually, when we join together in one place, we worship, we, we we join really in unity because as we sing together, we're actually affirming the same truths that the person next to us is affirming. Right? We're doing it with their mouths. When we when we give, we're affirming that that the gospel is worthy of our resources. When we pray, we're we're um, joining together. We're kind of linking arms together and saying, "Listen, our commander needs. To, we need the help of our commander." And so we're going to call out to him in prayer. And um, and I think when we do this in a corporate setting, we we are pleasing to God. Then thirdly, we witness or participate in the ordinances. I say witness because. We're not going to constantly be participating in baptism, although you could say that that watching and encouraging the believers along the way is a form of participation. But but um, but these two are are critical. We don't just gather at 11 o'clock on Sunday to talk for an hour or two, um, but we rather instead we we do this as part of a, a gathered assembly. And as I've mentioned in other classes as well, um, these ordinances are not to be done apart from the local church. If the local church has the responsibility of guarding the who, the what and the who of the gospel, then the local church is the one who should be authorized to do these ordinances. So, for example, I, I don't take the Lord's Supper to shut-ins. Okay? There are people who do. Uh, there are other churches that do that sort of thing. Well, we want them to be included. Well, the Lord's Supper is meant to be to be um, to be given in the in an assembly. First Corinthians 11 is very clear on that. I don't I don't do private baptisms, anything like that. Okay, so um, I don't have the authority to either. Right, it's the church who has the authority to do that, and I happen to um, to work on behalf of the church. All right. Well, I need to wrap this up here, so let's move to implication number three. And that is the church gathers for edification. Turn to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26.
it's easy for us to think that the church should just be about God. It's only about God. Um, it's about praising God. But the purpose, if, if we're going to guard the what and the who of the gospel, we have to recognize that it's about God, but it also includes other people. <clears throat> it includes us. Look at verse 26. It says, What is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble each of... Each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. So you all have your own individual ways that you worship God, right? You, you have your tongue, your psalm, you have it, you love it, and you, and you express it. But what I'm saying is that, that there's more to our worship than just me and God, right? The, we think about it like a vertical dimension. There's also a, a horizontal dimension to it, which is everything that's done in the service ought to be done for edification. And that's why I think that Ephesians 5.19 is so helpful. Sing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and make, making melody in your heart to the Lord. So we're doing it to the Lord. Yes, at the end, it's that vertical dimension, but we need to sing to one another because there's an encouragement factor that we have to include. So our weekly gatherings are critical and they must be done God's way. And, and when we do this, we get a glimpse of what eternity is going to be about. Because if you're not happy joining together with believers now, or I should say if a person's not happy joining together with believers now, if a person's not finding joy in worshiping God now and, and finding out more about His glory and, and praising Him for it, if, if people are not happy about depending on God through prayer and singing to one another, then why is it going to change when we get to heaven? Right? Why, why is heaven going to be a good place for us? Um, and, and so that's why we include all these elements in our worship and encourage, encourage each person to participate in them um, as they have been gifted to do so. And so our, our worship really is, is part of the joy of our salvation now that we'll enjoy for all of eternity, but also the worship that we'll have in eternity is, is really, um, we're, we're starting to see a part of that or, or experience a part of that uh, even now. All right, any questions or comments? Greg. Yep, could be. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the establishment of the church. Thank you for the establishment of this local church. And we pray that, that it would be a source of, of joy for us, but, but it would also be a place where we come and, and among people who love you and are worshiping you. And we pray that we would do it according to how you want to be worshipped. In Jesus' name, amen.